Hello, and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, a podcast from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Mia Lobel. On each episode of our show, we'll speak with a top scientist in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today, we'll talk with Susan Gottesman, Chief of the Biochemical Genetics Section of the Laboratory of Molecular Biology at the National Cancer Institute and editor of the Annual Review of Microbiology. Dr. Gottesman, thanks so much for joining us. So before we get to what you're working on now, can you tell me what first got you excited about science? Certainly. Um, I was given a book called Microbe Hunters to Read by my father when I was in about fifth or sixth grade, I think. It's a book that was, a, I think, a bestseller, maybe in the 30s or 40s. Um, so this was a number of years after that, but it was um, a very accessible look at how people first were able to look at bacteria, how they were first able to understand that bacteria cause disease. And it had a combination of enough science to really appeal to, to me and uh, enough drama to, to uh, make me think that that would be an exciting thing to do. And so I became very interested in bacteria. So was this like the Nancy Drew of microbiology? Well, so so this was a, a, a nonfiction book with chapters on Pasteur, pa, uh, chapters on the first uh, attempts to to make vaccines, on the first evidence that that, that yellow fever was caused by a, a microbe, um, had the first attempt to make a microscope, um, uh, but. Um, a little Nancy Drew was something else I was reading at the same time. No, no question about it. So, you know, the idea of solving puzzles was something that I really liked, and that combined with um, how you could even isolate a single bacteria. They they described how somebody learned to to spread it out on on a slice of potato, and so colonies would grow up. And those were the first time that anybody had been able to sort of get isolated a, a kind of bacteria separate from everything else uh, to study it. So something about all of that really excited me. So when you got to Radcliffe in the early 60s, did you then know that you wanted to be a scientist as a career? Well, that was what I had in mind, yeah. So I mean, after um, when I was in high school, I was able to do some summer programs um, that put me in a lab um, mostly lectures, but also some experimental work, and, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, so that, that was, I certainly applied to college with that in mind, although other things interested me also. So uh, whether I would have necessarily stu- struck, stuck with it if, uh, if things had gone another direction, I don't know. But that, I, I applied with the idea that I would be a scientist and that I would work on bacteria. Was there a particular class or a teacher that really inspired you on that path? Well, you know, I think more than a class, I I took a lot of classes and I enjoyed some of them. Some of them I would say the science classes weren't always the most exciting. They had um, what was called um, a tutorial system in which I was paired with a senior scientist. Well, I mean, some of them were graduate students, but actually my tutor was, in fact, a full professor at MIT and who, had, who tutored a lot of undergraduates. And so I met with him regularly, and we read papers, and we discussed science, and then I did uh, research in his lab. So all of that was um, very appealing. And in fact, I met him 
very early on because my freshman year, I was in something called a freshman seminar, which was, again, lab-based. And I just liked playing in the lab. So any chance I got to play in the lab, I did. And that's really what kept me very interested. Was that unusual for a woman back then? <laughs> well, yes and no. <laughs> um, so uh, classes at Radcliffe were totally integrated sex-wise at that point. Um, so my classes were with the men. Um, the woman who ran the, the freshman seminar that I took was actually run by the woman, Mary Bunting, who was then president of Radcliffe, and she was actually a microbiologist. Um, so there were a few people around. There were none of my professors were women. Uh, um, and certainly Radcliffe, in terms of telling me what courses to take or advising me hadn't a clue. But, uh, but there, were, there were certainly other women interested in science and, and doing science around me. And I, I'm not sure it occurred to me that it was unusual. I, I actually had a very good time. I was in a physics class, which was mostly men. I met my husband there. I met other people I, I went out with. You know, it, was, it, was, um, it was a lot of fun, and I got to, to do the science too. So. Can you point to a specific moment that you got really excited about biochemical genetics? Well, so, you know, to some extent, biochemical genetics is a made-up name because these sections have to have some combination of, of, of names that's, that are unique. And, and I actually inherited the name of the section from the previous person. Um, so, so, but genetics was what appealed to me, and, and probably I got into that as... Um, mostly when I was a graduate student. So I was in the lab of John Beckwith at, at Harvard Medical School, and he's a superb geneticist. And sort of the way one thinks about, about solving a problem with genetics is figuring out how to get the bacteria to do the work for you and tell you what's going on. And then you want to take it to the next step and find out whether what's going on, what you're inferring from the way a colony or grows or doesn't grow under various conditions. Um, how that, whether that's really reflected in what's happening at the level of the DNA. So then you have to go into some biochemistry or at least some molecular biology and be able to look at, at what's being expressed. So the, that combination, having the, the genetics tell you where to look and then looking, opening up the cell and looking and getting the answer that you expect is really exciting. And that's what was going on in, in Beckwith's lab when I was there. And then um, one of our first projects here, we sort of got in, we, we made some predictions from, the, from fairly complicated genetics. We went and did the experiment, and sure enough, the, the protein we were looking for was doing exactly what we expected. So that, there's nothing more fun than that. What would you say is the most um, significant incident or occurrence in your research so far? Was it, was it there at Harvard? Oh no! <laughs> I mean, my my project in terms of the the weight of the results or the importance of the results. Kind of the thing that that just made you go, okay, this is why I've been doing this kind of work for my career. Well, you know, I'm not sure that I ever thought anything else. As long as I was in the lab playing, even the day to day stuff that can be boring a bit is fun. Figuring out the little problems along the way. Um, I think what, what we all need in terms of going forward with a career is that we can do it. That is, we can actually figure out something of worth and, and have it come out right. And that probably waited until I was uh, here on my own a little bit. Or, no, let me back up. I had 
we, I sort of started a new project um, while I was at MIT for a couple of years and, and made some predictions and, and they checked out and it sort of opened up a whole new field that I, that I then started to pursue. And that, that probably gave me the feeling for the first time that I could develop something de novo by myself and, and get it somewhere, you know, achieve something. Was there ever a point where you doubted what it was you were doing and your choice to sort of dedicate your life to microbiology? Um, not really, partially because it worked out pretty easily for me. I think when I was in college, when I went into college, the courses that most interested me weren't the science courses necessarily. I mean, I was interested in, in, in history and in sort of uh, political science. I took a lot of courses of that sort. Um, and if I hadn't ever been in a lab before I got there, uh, or while I was there, I might have been tempted to sort of leave the science behind because the, the courses weren't so exciting. But I couldn't imagine not playing in the lab, and I couldn't imagine a career in which I read and wrote and didn't do other things. So um, so it, it just was something that always appealed to me, and I was able to do it without a lot of suffering. I mean, I, I got to do what I wanted to do at each stage, which made it particularly attractive. I think the things that frustrate people are difficulty with funding, difficulty finding jobs in good places, difficulty with who's around them, their interactions, and I've, I've really been very fortunate in having wonderful colleagues and wonderful support for most of my career. To what do you attribute your success in that when it is so hard for some <laughs> scientists to, to get the funding they need to do the work they want to do? To some extent, pure luck and serendipity. I mean, we first came to the NIH um, as postdoctoral fellows because my husband had an MD and he would have been drafted otherwise. Hmm. Um, so I don't know that I would have ever thought of coming to NIH otherwise. Uh, we came, we had a good time here, we left for a couple of years, and when we were looking for jobs, we knew we liked it here and we got offered jobs back here. And I have to tell you, um, NIH is really can heaven in terms of doing research uh, in, a, in a way that takes away all of those distractions. Um, we're supported without having to write grants. Um, it's, space is tight. There are, there are little annoyances now and then, but basically it's, it's a wonderful place to be. So we ended up here partially by accident and, um, you know, have thrived here. And, and, and there was also a very strong fact, a community of people doing things that were related to what I do. So that makes it all a lot more fun when there are people who are interested in what you're doing that you can talk to, argue with. Um, hear what they're doing, hear about the latest uh, things that are going on. All of that makes it easier to do good science. How important has that community been in, in the work that you've done over the past couple oh, of decades? Critically important. I, I can't imagine. Uh, you, there's, there are, I don't know of a scientist who can invent everything themselves and figure out how to do everything themselves. We, we get ideas from everybody we talk to, everybody we hear speak everything we read and we, we integrate it into what we do and, and try to adapt it to what we do. And having a, a really active group of people that, can, that you can bounce ideas off of that, can, that will tell you that they don't believe what, what you're saying, that you better get better evidence, um, 
that, you know, what's interesting, what's not, uh, and just hearing what, what gossip they gather about what's going on in the scientific world and what might be interesting directions. So all of those are, are really critically important and um, make, make it, aside from being a lot more fun, a lot more productive. Can you tell me a little bit more about what's so great about the lab? I mean, you've talked about that from, you know, from your, your first days of, of Radcliffe all the way through. What, what is it that's so interesting and fun and exciting? Well, so, so, so I can do an experiment one day, put my Petri dishes in the incubator overnight, and in the morning I have colonies growing up that are different colors that tell me something new about my bacteria. So I can basically do an experiment quickly. Um, I can come in and look at it the next day. So I, I come in and, well, I don't get to do experiments as much anymore <laughs> than I, as I did when I was earlier in my career. But you come in and, and it's, it's like, you know, something exciting is waiting there each day. Um, and I, I like the, the little problem solving. I mean, that's what I like to do um, is so even the, the trying to make an experiment work that should be working and figuring out why it didn't is, is a challenge. And it's different every day. I mean, it, there's nothing repeti- repetitious about, about the kind of science we do, although some of the, the procedures might be repetitious, but there's always something new. Um, so that keeps it interesting. Um, and I like to... I like to puzzle at things, so even when I'm doing something that's relatively repetitious, I'm thinking about, well, if I did this a little differently or if this works, what will it mean about how the, the bacteria is working, how it's responding under these conditions, so I can sort of worry around it in, in different directions um, while I'm sitting there with a toothpick streaking out a bacterial colony or pick, streaking out 50 of them. Um, so it's it's the combination of, and I and I just like I like I guess, just the it, it's restful to do some of those those tasks. It's not just sitting; it's standing and pipetting and doing other kinds of things that are that I find very restful. Where do you see microbiology going in the future? In the next, you know, say five years, ten years? Well, so. So the big change that's happening, and it's already started to happen, is that I work on a bacteria called E. coli. It's the basic um, model system, or one of a couple of model systems that we've been able to manipulate and understand for years. And we learn things in that organism, um, but now we're, we're getting the genome sequence of many, many other organisms. We're understanding how those organisms interact with each other. There's a, there's a huge um, attempt to get all of the bact- the sequence of all of the bacteria, say in the human gut or on the human skin or in various diseases, it's never just one isolated kind of bacteria doing something. It's, it's a whole set of them interacting in complex ways. And we're starting to have the tools to try to dissect that much, much more complicated business. Um, and so that's going to be happening for sure over the next many years. Uh, and and our ability to sequence as well as our ability to analyze in new ways are opening up all kinds of possibilities. How does it feel to think back to when you know the lab that you started in when you first started doing this field to where things are now? What stands out as as sort of the most noteworthy event? Well, I mean, I think it's the, it's the change in technology and what we can do. I was somebody just asked me about 
a strain I had made with a where I had mutated a gene, and and we did it probably 20 years ago, and I pulled out the paper to sh to look at how we had done it and realized how hard it was to do something like that then. It took it took us weeks, and we didn't get exactly what we wanted. And now we can do the, we can manipulate the the organism in days in any way we want. So, so the advent of recombinant DNA technology, the advent of PCR, all of these techniques um, for manipulating DNA, the the advent of sequencing what we have very quickly, they've they've changed what can be done so that. It used to be you had to think hard about how to do it. Now you have to think hard about what it means after you've done it. You can't. It, the time isn't spent with just trying to get there. Um, it's it, things go very quickly. I know. I know you're you're quite modest in attributing a lot of your success to luck and your colleagues and all of that. But what would you say is the achievement that you're the most proud of? <laughs> um, well, I think I think we were the first to show that protein turnover, that the ability to degrade proteins and was important for regulation of how genes are expressed and, and how functions are expressed in, in all organisms. And we were doing it in bacteria before it really became important anyplace else. It's, it, it's probably the, the major thing that, that our lab was, was first at. Um, and we were sort of following the genetics and then going back to the molecular biology to do it. Um, other, more recently, we've gotten into these small RNAs and that that also regulate gene expression. That's been very exciting, but certainly a number of groups were doing it in parallel, and we all interact. And our lab is has plays an important role there, but I, I certainly wouldn't take primary credit for that. What does it mean to be selected as the editor of the Microbiology Review for annual reviews? So, so it, it's a challenge, but it's really an exciting job in the sense that it's a way to look at the whole field of microbiology um, from a bit of a distance. So the, the, what, what the job really consists of is sitting around a table with a lot of other microbiologists once a year and coming up with every idea you can think of about what would be good to have uh, reviews written about and then convincing people that they should really write these. So thinking about what needs to be presented, how to get people to present it well, trying to see ahead two years because because it's a book rather than something that comes out very frequently, we're planning well in advance. Um, it, it's, a, it's a little humbling when you when I realize how many of the articles in that in the annual reviews, uh, you know, educated me over the years. Um, that that's where that's where we tend to go first to find out. You know, you're starting a new field. You want to find out what's known about it. You go there and find out who's written what, re and and what they had to say, and then start thinking about it from there. So, so uh, it's it's important to remember who our audience is and, and try to find people who will speak to those audiences. It, but it's, it's a lot of fun, and it's not actually a whole lot of work because the staff does a wonderful job. What would you say to someone getting started in microbiology who's, who's looking at this review or someone who's beginning their graduate work and, and is sort of looking at the field as a whole? So, I mean, the, the thing I, I say to all young scientists is that it's not worth doing it unless they really love it because it's a pain in the neck. 
I mean, it's 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 not like you're ever done. It's not like you're you're always feeling like you you need to read more. You have to keep up with things. You have to. It's not a relaxing kind of lifestyle in that sense. But if you love it, it's exciting from beginning to end. And I try to tell people not to get too narrow. I mean. Um, we all we all work on what is our own stuff, and we need to know that intensely. But if you can at least listen and read more broadly, you'll be surprised at the connections you can make and the directions you can go. So, so there are things that you know I learn in seminars that I didn't think there would be anything in there for me, but um, I learned something that that uh, helps me make my research better. And the same is true for reading review articles or reading other kinds of articles. You pick up things that you don't know you needed to know. Um, and so if you keep your mind a bit open and have at least some of your time free enough to, to, to listen more broadly, um, your science will be better. And you'll find new directions to take things. Wonderful. Dr. Gottesman, thank you so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. Next time, we'll speak with Sandra Faber, co-editor of the Annual Review of Astronomy and Astrophysics. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.